All right, good morning, everybody. It's great to see you this morning. Do you have your Bible with you? Yeah, good. Turn to Hebrews chapter 10. If you don't have a Bible with you, grab one, please, from the pew rack right in front of you so you can study along with us. Last week, we basically wrapped up uh, the main portion of the letter, the main teaching portion of the letter, this section that dealt with the high priestly ministry of Jesus, started way back at the end of chapter 4, which for us was way back on October 23rd. This is when we started this main portion of teaching in this letter. So for several months, we have been looking closely at the idea of Jesus as our great high priest, how Jesus is superior in every way to the old covenant priest, how Jesus offers a better sacrifice than those guys could ever offer, how Jesus mediates a better covenant, how he gives us better access to the Father, and how we have greater confidence to stand before the Father because of his work. Jesus is better in every possible way. And so because Jesus is better, why would we want to turn anywhere else? Why would we be tempted even to turn anywhere else? And yet we are. The people that this letter was written to were tempted to turn back to Judaism. And I don't know what it is for you. My doubt is that it's Judaism. I I don't think it's Judaism for you, but it is something. There is some temptation for you to walk away from Jesus and trust in something else. Maybe it's yourself. Maybe you want to turn away from Jesus and trust in yourself for all of your life. Or maybe you turn and trust in stuff or some other relationship. I'm telling you, there is no place to turn except Jesus Christ for any real hope in this life or the life to come. We talked last week about how we see in the text that God's word is for us here and now. It's not just about them way back then. It's about being for us here and now. So when we read it, we don't read it just as an historical document. We read it as a living letter to us today, and we must read it that way. And then last week we dealt with this question of who who are we? Are we counted among those who have been perfected by the one sacrifice of Jesus? That's what the text talked about last week. Are we among that number who have been perfected? And if we are, then we are also among that number who is being sanctified. The group that is currently being sanctified is the group that has been justified. And so the question of have I been justified is really answered in the present tense of am I being sanctified? Am I growing in Christ's likeness? Am I on a Godward trajectory? And if you are, then there is confidence and assurance that you have been perfected. And if you are not growing... If you are not on a Godward trajectory, then there is little assurance and little confidence. In fact, maybe even great doubt that you have been justified. There are a lot of people. There are a lot of people who have made some profession of faith in Jesus Christ that don't really know Jesus. There there are a lot of people that have walked an aisle and prayed a prayer and even been baptized that will stand before God in judgment and hear, depart from me. I never knew you. We don't want to be amongst that group of people. We want to really trust in Jesus Christ and follow him in our daily lives and grow in Christ-likeness every day. We want to be people who bear real fruit, real fruit of the grace that he has shown to us in our lives. Well, this week in chapter 10, we really shift gears. Really, for the rest of the book, we're going to be talking about application. It's going to be practical application of all of these great truths we've learned over the last several months. One scholar said it's a move from doctrine to duty from creed to conduct, from precept to practice, from instruction to exhortation. 
That's the shift that we need to make in our minds. So no longer are we going to be outlining and dissecting exactly who Jesus is and what he has done. Now we're going to make transition to this. What do we do about it? What difference does this make in our lives? That's where the attention of the author of Hebrews is going to go. Uh, R. Kent Hughes, uh, a scholar I like to read, said it like this. He says, Though we do not know who the author of Hebrews was, We do know that he was a preacher with flaming pastoral instincts. He did not do theology for theoretical ends, but rather for down-to-earth practical purposes. So we come here to the great turning point in Hebrews, where the author turns from the explanation explanation of the superiority of the person and work of Christ to the application of it in the lives of the storm-tossed church. That's the shift that we're making from explanation to application. And that's good. Like we, we like this kind of thing. We like this kind of give me the practical application of it. In fact, that's what we try to do every week, whether the text is about application or not. We try to make some application because we know that we are not just to be readers of the word. We're not just to be hearers of the word. We're not just to be knowers of the word. What are we called to be? Doers of the word. And so this is going to really ring true with a lot of you, really, for the rest of the letter. So in many ways, this is where we've been trying to get since October. Since October 23rd, when we introduced all of this talk about Jesus as the great high priest, we've been trying to get here where the author of Hebrews will say, now, therefore, this is what you should do with your life based on who Jesus is and what he has done. So today, today we pull into our destination that we've been trying to arrive at for some time. And as we do that, I want us to look back on the journey since October, the journey that has brought us to this place, and I want us to see the journey as valuable. As excited as I am to get to this part of Hebrews, I don't want us to discount or discredit all of the last few months and the study we have done about who Jesus is. In fact, I want us to take all of that study we've done about who Jesus is and let it propel us forward on this day. We don't forget about these things. We see those things, we remember those things, and we move forward into what difference it should make in our lives today. So let's read the text together. And then we'll pray together and we'll study through it closely. Look at Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 19. This is what God's word says. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Let's pray together. God, we, uh, we invite the Holy Spirit this morning to do what he does in reminding us about the things we have been taught. God, we pray today as we move into a section that is about application, exhortation, that you will call to our remembrance all of these great truths about Jesus as our great high priest, that we'll remember the oath, that we'll remember the talk about Melchizedek, that we'll remember 
the greater sacrifice of Jesus. That we'll remember the access that has been granted to us into your very presence because of Jesus. That we'll remember these things and put them into action. God, we want to draw near to you today. We want to see you, have an encounter with you that changes our lives forever. And we want to hold tight to the hope that we have in Christ. Even when life is hard and even when we are tempted to turn away, we want to hold tight to Jesus and cling to Jesus because he is our only hope. So we pray that you help us to do that and remind us that you are faithful. God, we pray that you'll work your word into our hearts today and that it will work out through our lives as we live for you in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So before we look closely at 19 to 25 today, I want to take you back to October and show you something pretty neat. Um, scholars would call this an inclusio. Uh, maybe a better way to understand that is kind of a bookend. You're going to see in chapter 4, verses 14 to 16, a text that is almost identical. In fact, in a lot of ways, is identical to the text we look at here in chapter 10. And so in chapter 4, just before he started all this explanation about Jesus as the great high priest, he said some things to introduce it. Then he said all of this stuff about Jesus as the great high priest. And then here in chapter 10, as he wraps up that talk, he goes back and says something very similar to what he said in chapter 4. In fact, turn back there or, or look at it on the screen. Chapter 4, verses 14 to 16, and listen for things that are very similar to what we just read. Therefore... Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now, if you can go back to October 23rd in your mind, you'll remember that we didn't know much of what any of that meant. We didn't know much at that point about what is this great high priest? What does it mean that he's been tempted like we are? What do we mean? What does it mean we draw near to the throne of grace? What does any of this mean? Because the author of Hebrews was at that point just introducing this. But for four months, we've studied the details of what all of that means, right? For four months, we've looked closely at Jesus' role as our great high priest and the sacrifice he makes on our behalf and how he gives us access to the Father. We've studied that in great detail so that when he says all of that same stuff again in chapter 10, verse 19, we know exactly what he's talking about and we are a little more excited about it now than we were then, right? Because it's familiar to us now and we have uh, digested it and we've savored the greatness of all of these truths about Jesus as our great high priest. So there's an inclusio or bookends on this argument of Jesus as our great high priest. Look at verse 19. Back to chapter 10, verse 19. He starts out with the word therefore. And we have talked often in here about the importance of that word. It shows us that what the author is about to say is connected to what he has just said. And this is so true here in this text. This, therefore, reaches all the way back to chapter 5 and brings in all of those things he's been teaching us for the last several months. In fact, the author is going to go back and do a real quick review before he actually gets into the point he's trying to make in this text. In fact, we're going to look at that closely in just a minute. So hold on to that. 
you know that therefore reaches back and brings in some ideas. But you also know that the word therefore is used by the author of Hebrews in particular to make transition into a new section of his teaching. In fact, usually it's used to move into a section of application. Flip back in your Bible to chapter 3, verse 1. Chapter 3, verse 1 is the first place he did this when he said, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider Jesus. That's a, that's a command. That's an exhortation. That's an expectation of action. He says, therefore, consider Jesus. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. He says, therefore, let us fear. That's an application. That's a call to action. That's a command. Therefore, let us fear. Look at chapter 4, verse 11. He says, therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest. That's a command. That's a call to action. It's imperative. He's calling us to do something. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter the rest. Look at chapter 4, verse 14. He says, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. That's what we just looked at a little while ago. Skip over to chapter 6, verse 1. Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about Christ, let us press on to maturity. So what I want you to see is that often he uses the word therefore and follows it right up with let us. So what he does is he lays out some foundation. He lays out some teaching about who Jesus is and what he has done. And then he follows it up by saying, therefore, based on that truth of Jesus, let us do something. And this is good. This is good for us to see that pattern because we want to lay a foundation of right understanding of who Jesus is. But we don't just want to lay the foundation and then walk away and say, look at this foundation. Right? Look at this foundation we have. No, we want to build a house on the foundation, right? We want to live on that foundation. And that's what the author of Hebrews does. He says, therefore, let us, let us move on. Let us press on. Let us hold fast. Let us draw near. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. All of it based on the truth of who Jesus is and what he has done for us. So in verse 19, he starts out by saying, therefore. And then he says this. He says, therefore, brethren. This is also a significant word that we could easily overlook and just breeze right on past. This word shows us some important things. It shows us first the author's affection for these people. He has loving affection for these people. They are not outsiders. They are not acquaintances. They are beloved brethren. Notice also it shows the author's connection. He not only has affection for them, he has a connection with them. They are his family. They are his flesh and blood. It also shows the faith of his hearers. He is not writing the things he's about to say to lost people. He's not writing the things he's about to say to the world in general. He is writing the things he's about to say to believers who are brothers of his in Christ. There is a common faith. So we see affection, we see connection, and we see faith. Tom Schreiner says it this way, the readers are addressed here as brothers. They are not merely readers or recipients or even friends. They are family and they are brothers and sisters of the author. And maybe you're part of that group today. And if you're one of those brothers or sisters, you need to especially lean in and listen up because this word is for you. This word of application based on all of these great truths about Jesus is for you. But I also want to say if you're not a brother, you're not a sister, 
If you are one of those outsiders, even though this word is not for you directly, you need to lean in and listen in. Like listening in from the outsider. Listen to the, to the glory of Christ. Listen to the invitation to follow him. Listen to the benefit that those who know him receive in being able to draw near and hold fast to him. And maybe you want to become a brother today. Maybe you want to become a sister today. Maybe you want into this family today. The door is open, right? The door is open. There's one door to get into this family, but it's an open door in the Lord Jesus Christ. So listen up. He says, therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God. Here we see the two bases. Am I saying that right, Joe? What's the plural of basis? Bases? You with me on that? Basises? That, that's not right. That can't be right. There are two foundations here for the things that he is going to say, for the exhortations he will give to the believers. There are two foundations, and these two foundations are a great summary statement of the lessons we've been looking back at since October, really. In fact, I said last week, if I ever get one chance to preach one message somewhere, it's probably going to be Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 to 25. And part of that is because you must... When you preach chapter 10, verses 19 to 25, you must reach back and explain some of chapter 5 through chapter 10. Like he is assuming that you understand some of it. So you're not just going to be able to preach these, let us draw near and let us hold fast and let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. You're also going to have to preach a little bit of who Jesus is and what he has done for us on the cross. And so the author reaches back and gives these summary statements, right? Notice, as he gives those summary statements of all that he's taught us since chapter 5, he speaks of these things as possessions of ours. He says, since we have confidence, right? And since we have a great high priest. These are not theoretical possibilities. These are not just theological concepts. These are possessions of ours. These are they belong to us, right? We have a great high priest and we have confidence and that should give us hope. So here's basis number one. We have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. Basically, this first basis is all about access. If you're going to use one word to describe what he's talking about here, what he's been talking about since chapter 5, we would say access. And we have seen this over and over and over for the last few months. Because of Jesus' work as our great high priest, because of his superior once-for-all sacrifice, we have access to the Father. We are not like those Old Testament worshipers. We are not like those guys under the old covenant who had to stay at a distance from the presence of God, right? We are not like those guys. Not, we're not even like the Old Testament high priest who once a year for 10 minutes got to go into the presence of God, but he did it with fear and trepidation. We are not like those old covenant worshipers. We're not like those old covenant priests. We have access to the Father 
and we come into his presence with confidence and with boldness. We enter the presence of the Father with confidence because of the sacrifice of Jesus. This is good, right? Aren't you thankful that we can sing this song? Oh, come to the altar. The Father's arms are open wide. Forgiveness was bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Aren't you thankful that we don't sing, stay back from the altar? Or you might get smited by the Father. Smote, smoted. Not good with grammar today. Smitten, smitten, that's it. <laughs> Thanks, now you help. Yeah, aren't you glad we don't sing it like that? We need to rejoice in this access that we have to the Father through the Son, right? The language of the new covenant is, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. I'll give you rest, not stand back. That's the language of the old covenant. Stand back. Jesus says, come to me. And we need to rejoice over that. Notice that the text calls it a new and living way. We have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way. That word new means it was previously unavailable. Like during the Old Covenant, this kind of access was not available. There was limited partial access through the blood of bulls and goats and things like that. But there was not access like this. This kind of access was simply unavailable during the Old Covenant. And notice also, it's a new and living way. It's living because there is not only reference to the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, but also to his resurrection. All of those bulls and goats are still dead. But the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, is alive forevermore. Oh, he died. He died as the wage of sin in our place. But he lives in victory over sin and death and hell. It's a new and living way by which we draw near to the Father. And notice the overall lesson is because of his death for us, we have access Right? We've talked about the veil. Notice he says, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. So far in Hebrews, when we've been talking about the veil, we've been talking about it as the thing that separates us, that kept us out of the presence of God. But we should also see the veil as that through which we must pass to get into his presence. Right? So when the, when the high priest went into the Holy of Holies, he went through the veil, right? In order to get into the God's presence, you had to go through the veil. That's how he got into the presence. Well, Jesus, the, the text says here that we go through the veil that is his flesh. In other words, to get into the presence of God, you must go through the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the veil that we must pass through to get in the presence of God. He says it this way in John 14, right? When he says, oh, you know where I'm going and you know how to get there. Thomas says, what are you talking about? We don't know where you're going. How can we possibly know how to get there? And what's he say? I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. He's the only way to get into the presence of the Father. We must pass through him in order to get to the presence of God. So we have confidence that because of his death, we have access to the Father. And before we move on to the next basis for the exhortation, I want to give you a warning about abusing that confidence. We want to be careful that our confidence doesn't become arrogance. That we live with proper confidence that we have access to the Father because of the Son. 
but we guard ourselves against arrogance that would cause us to walk around with our chest all puffed up saying, I have, ac I have access to the Father and you don't. Right? That's the way it works at my house. When one of our kids gets something and the other one doesn't, we get this a lot of times. Na -na 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 -boo -boo, right? I've, I've got it and you don't. And sometimes we can live like that when it comes to our access to the Father. I've got it. I've got it. I've got it. I've got the ticket to get into his presence and you don't. And so I'll walk around with my chest puffed out. Romans chapter 8 talks about this confidence, but it roots our confidence always in the work of Christ. So we don't walk around with a swagger, but we do walk around with confidence because of Jesus Christ. Look at Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 28. It says, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good, to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. You need to hang on to that. That the ones who are called are the ones who are glorified. And the ones who are called are the ones who are justified. There is no one lost in that process. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered, but... In all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is serious confidence. Serious confidence that we can walk around and say, if God is for us, who can be against us? But we need to be careful that it remains as confidence that is rooted in the Lord Jesus Christ and doesn't become prideful arrogance where we walk around with a swagger. We need to be really careful about that. So that's a word of warning. Be careful that our confidence doesn't become arrogance. So basis number one is we have access. We have access because of Jesus into the presence of the Father. Basis number two is we have a great high priest over the house of God. What do priests do? We've talked about this several times. What do priests do? They offer sacrifices and they act as a mediator between God and man. They kind of put one hand on God and one hand on man and bring them together through prayer and uh, prophecy and a million other things. They are actively involved. And so what the author is doing here is teaching us that Jesus not only gives us access to the Father, but he is our active mediator. He is our constant connection to the Father. We don't go to a man in a funny hat or a long robe to get our access to the Father. We go to the Father through Jesus the Son, right? And he is constantly interceding for us. He is constantly going to the Father on our behalf. So, what the author does here in these verses is he gives us these bases in what Jesus has done through his death, 
in giving us access to the Father and what Jesus is doing as our high priest, uh, continuing to give us access to the Father, continuing to mediate. So he earned us access to the Father in his death, and he maintains our access to the Father in his role as our constant high priest. And all of this we've been talking about for months now, right? None of what I just shared with you is new at all. And if you are here in this moment and part of you is kind of like, let's move on already. We get it. Jesus is the priest. We get it. He gives us access to the Father. I have heard enough of this. Let's move on. If that's where your heart is today, honestly, this is a problem. It is a major problem. If this repetition is boring to you, you've got a major problem. When your husband tells you that he loves you, you don't respond with, Oh, I know. Every day you tell me this. I get it. Let's move on. Did any of you wives respond like that? I hope not. Or fellas, if your wife asks you to watch the wedding video or look through the album of pictures from your wedding, do you respond, really? Again? I was there. I remember. I don't need to look at the pictures again. No. When those most important things are rehearsed over and over and over, it only increases your love and appreciation for those things, right? It doesn't decrease. You don't get tired of the things that matter most in your life. And I am telling you, the priestly work of Jesus Christ matters most in your life. The fact that he died for your sins to give you access to the Father. The fact that he sits at the Father's right hand making constant intercession for you. This is really, really good news. So four months, four months of talking about it is no problem. <laughs> Should be no problem. Let's talk about it for four years. Let's talk about it for four decades. Let's talk about it for four millennia. This is what heaven's going to be like. Thinking and talking and rejoicing over the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. And worshiping him as a result of it. So listen, I'm, I'm serious about this. If you've got this, man, let's move on. Attitude. This, there's something wrong with your heart. Something wrong with your heart. You need to check it. So. The author of Hebrews reminds us about all these things. He gives us these summary statements of all that he's talked about since chapter 5. And then he moves into the exhortation. To make clear, again, that the call to action is always based on the truth of who Jesus is. We're not just conjuring up activities for you to check off your list. No, we are responding to who Jesus is and what he has done for us. So look at verse 22. This is exhortation number one. Let us draw near. With a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. In other words, we must avail ourselves of this access and draw near to God. It is one thing to have access. It is another thing to draw near to him. It is one thing to say, wow, that's a fantastic open door. It's another thing to walk through the door and meet with God. We have been talking, we have been talking for months about how the door is open 
because of Jesus. Access has been granted. But if you stand by your own will continually outside of that door, you're crazy. You're crazy. The door is open. Go through it. Draw near to God. The way has been paved. The access has been granted. So walk into his presence. Draw near to him and worship him. It would be absurd for us to have the privilege of such access to the presence of the Father and yet never to draw near to him. Spurgeon talks about how prophets and kings of ancient times longed for this access, but it was denied to them. They longed to be able to draw near to God, but he constantly said, no, you, you can't, not like that. One time, once a year, one guy can come in, but other than that, you're at a distance. They long to be able to come into his presence like we do. And they are insulted, I believe, they are insulted when we who have been granted such access intentionally stay away. So let's draw near to God. Let's draw near to him and worship him. Warren Wearsby says it like this. I think this will be on the board. He says, the old covenant high priest visited the Holy of Holies once a year. But we are invited to dwell in the presence of God every moment, each day. What a tremendous privilege. So let's dwell in his presence. Let's not just visit him. Listen, a lot of us act just like the old covenant priest. We visit the presence of God once a week. Once a week we draw near and maybe then only going through the motions. Let's not act like those guys. Let's draw near to the presence of God in every moment. It's a good thing. It's a good thing to draw near to God. Psalm 73, 28 says, But as for me, the nearness of my God is good. I want you to know that it is good to draw near to God. And if you've ever drawn near to God, you know that it is good. So draw near to God and do it with a sincere heart. Notice what the text says. Let us draw near with a sincere heart. The Greek term behind that word sincere carries the idea of being true, genuine, and without ulterior motive. Jesus talks to a group of people who don't have sincere hearts in Matthew chapter 15, verse 8. I think this will be on the board. Maybe? It doesn't look like it's there. Matthew 15, verse 8. Jesus is engaging the Pharisees. You know who those guys are? Those are the guys who are doing everything right according to the law. They're cleaning themselves like they should. They're being careful with what they eat. They're offering the right sacrifices. They're giving the right tithes. They're doing everything to be very careful with that ceremonial purity so that they can come into the presence of God. And Jesus engages these guys in Matthew chapter 15, verse 7, and he says, You hypocrites, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips. But their heart is far away from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. You catch that? That's a hard word. He says, you hypocrites. You may be doing all the right things on the outside, but your hearts are far from me. So it's vain what you do in, worship me, in worshiping me. So this, I want to caution you about this. When you draw near to God, don't do it like those guys. When you draw near to God, don't do it just on the outside. Like, I think we do that sometimes at church. We say, ah, I went to church today. Did you want to go to church today? No, my mom made me go. My wife dragged me here. We want to draw near to God with a sincere heart, not with ulterior motives, but truly and purely with focus 
and intention. Notice also he says, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. Full assurance means clear-headed confidence, stability that is generated in true believers as a result of Christ's work on their behalf. In other words, this is not some wishy-washy, well, I, I, think, I think Jesus is the way. Oh, I hope Jesus is the way. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure he died on the cross for my sins, and I'm fairly confident that he rose again from the dead. That's not the kind of faith we're talking about here. We're talking about confident, sure faith that is unshakable. Notice also he says, with hearts that are sprinkled and bodies that are washed. Immediately as Baptists, we want to say this is, this is New Testament reference to baptism. Here we go, here we go. But I don't think that's necessarily what's going on here. I think we've got to read this in its context. He's been talking about all of these old covenant rituals, right? He's been talking about all these old covenant rituals that could only clean you on the outside. And he says, listen, if it took that kind of cleansing to approach God back in the, in the old covenant, you've got a better cleansing now that allows you to approach him in the new covenant purity let me say it like this purity is still important as we draw near to God purity is still important as we draw near to God but the purity that we receive is given to us because of Jesus Christ it's not because we participated in a washing it's not because we were super careful with the law it's because we've been given grace we've been imputed righteousness the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ so he says that we are to draw near. Because we've been given this access, we are to draw near. But we're to draw near in certain ways. With sincere heart, in full assurance of faith, with heart sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and bodies washed with pure water. So I want to invite you to draw near to God, but to do so carefully. And to do so through Jesus Christ. Exhortation number two is in verse 23. He says, let us... Hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. This is the third time in this letter that he's told the people to hold on, to hold fast, to hold firm. He said it in chapter 4, verse 14. He said it in chapter 6, verse 18. And what is interesting is that this command is in the present tense. This command is in the present tense and therefore indicates an ongoing action. He doesn't just say, hold fast at one point in your life, and then it doesn't so matter. He, and that's the way we treat salvation a lot of times. I'm going to grab on to Jesus when I'm seven years old, and I got him now, so I'm just going to let go and just kind of hope that he hangs around close by as I live on with my life. No. Real salvation looks like taking hold of Jesus and never letting go, right? Hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. It's present tense, continuing continuing action and remember the context into which this is written it's a group of people who left judaism to follow jesus and they started following jesus trusting in jesus they took hold of jesus but then life got really hard they started to be cast out of their families they started to have trouble at work they started experiencing some persecution and so what do they want to do when life is hard they want to let go of jesus and go back to Judaism. They want to let go of Jesus and go back to what they've always known. And the whole reason why this book was written was to tell those people, don't let go of Jesus. Hold fast to him. He is the only hope that you've got. Hold fast. And that's exactly what he tells them again there. And that's what I want to say to you. You're not tempted to go to Judaism, but you're tempted to let go of Jesus for something else. Don't let go of Jesus. 
Nothing else brings you hope. No one else can save you. The language is emphatic. He says, hold fast without wavering. That word without wavering refers to something that is straight, something that does not bend. It speaks to stability and unchanging commitment. And what we're talking about here ultimately is perseverance. Perseverance. And we've talked a lot about perseverance over the last several months. And when we talk about perseverance or keeping the faith, we must always remember that the call to perseverance is never given in isolation. It is always given in the context of God's faithfulness to us. When he tells us to hold on, he says, because I'm holding on to you. The picture is never that God just dangles his hand down and we've got to hold on for dear life. The picture is never that way. The picture is he takes hold of us. He has got a hold of us. There is security of our salvation because of the work of Christ. But we should respond to his holding on to us by holding on to him as well. The call to hold on to Christ is never given in isolation. It's always given in the context of the promise of his faithfulness. We hold fast to him because he holds fast to us. Charles Spurgeon says it like this. God gives us no cause for wavering, for he never wavers. And that's what it says in the text, right? Verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Let us hold fast because the one you're holding on to is faithful. Hold on to him because he's holding on to you and he will never let you go. So what do you do? What do you do when your grip begins to weaken? What do you do when your hope begins to fade? What do you do? You will it stronger? Hold on stronger? No. You look in the face of Jesus. You look to him and you trust in him. You recall his past faithfulness to you, his great faithfulness over the generations. And you hold fast to him because you know he's holding fast to you. You don't look inside yourself for greater strength. You look to him. You look to him and his faithfulness. So make no mistake about it. We don't hold on to Jesus in order to maintain our salvation. Rather, our holding on to him is evidence that he is holding on to us. We don't earn our salvation by holding to him. We display our salvation by holding to him. Then look at verse 24. This is exhortation number three. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. We're actually going to talk about this next week. We're not going to treat this part of the text today. And I want to give it its own week because I think this is an area where First Baptist Church, particularly First Baptist Church, really struggles. Do not neglect the assembling together, as is the habit of some. Consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. He's talking about the importance of gathering. He's talking about the importance of fellowship. He's talking about the importance of community and being together. And we struggle with this. So I want to say this. Be here next week. And if you're not here next week based on this text, you better have a good excuse right? Like this text says, be here next week. And if you're going to say, mm, I got a better offer next week, it better be a really good offer. <laughs> so be here next week. But tonight, obey this word. 
We've canceled our evening service, not so that we won't gather, but so that we can gather in a different way. We cancel our evening service so that small groups can get together and consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. So that small groups can get together and outside of this building and outside of our normal routine, we can encourage one another. So do that tonight. We, seventh Sunday is not a throwaway. Seventh Sunday is not a day off. Seventh Sunday, I believe, is vital to the health of the church because it is vital to the health of the individual Christian. If you are not sharing your life with people, if you're not sharing your life with people, there is no way you can be spiritually healthy. Absolutely no way you can be spiritually healthy in isolation. And that's what we'll talk about next week. So be here next week to talk about those things. Three applications. Number one, everything we do, because this is a text that is a call to action. It is about what we do. Everything we do, we must do with our eyes fixed on Jesus. Do not make the mistake of moving on to action and forgetting about the truths of who Jesus is and what he has done. As we move on to action and as we say, all right, I'm going to draw near. All right, I'm going to hold fast. All right, I'm going to stimulate others to love and good deeds. As we do those things, we can't look away from Jesus. We've got to look at him, continually fix our eyes on him as we pursue these obedient actions. George Guthrie says it like this. I think this is on the board. He says, he, that is the author of Hebrews, uses exposition concerning Christ as the foundation for motivating his hearers to action. We've talked a lot about that, but listen to what he says next. He says, our Christianity, in order to be in line with the author's view of the Christian life, must be both doctrinally grounded and energetically acted upon. It must be both doctrinally grounded and energetically acted upon. To neglect doctrine robs our practice of its motivation and means. And many of us are tempted to do that. I don't, I don't want you to teach me anymore about that old covenant and that old priesthood and all those details. Just tell me what to do. If that's where you're at, if I could tell you what to do, but you've got no ground. You've got no basis. You've got no motivation for doing those things. So we need doctrine. And if we neglect it, we rob the practice of its motivation and means. Secondly, he says, to neglect acting upon our faith truncates God's twin goals for us of our maturation and perseverance, right? The, the, those are some big words there at the end, but basically he says, if all you ever do is study doctrine and you can, you can ace the quiz about the person and work of Jesus Christ, but you never have any intention of following him, you're missing the entire point. Doctrine is never the end. Doctrine is never the goal. It's always about doing what God has said. I think he's exactly right here. We want both doctrine and action here in our lives, here at First Baptist Church. So as we pursue these actions, we keep our eyes on Jesus. We don't take them off of him. Application number one, everything we do, we do with our eyes fixed on Jesus. Application number two comes straight out of the text. Draw near to God. How do I do that? What's it look like to draw near to God? There are two categories. We could talk about this for a month, but there are two categories I want to talk to you today about. Number one is through personal spiritual disciplines, through individual spiritual disciplines. How do I draw near to God? Through the discipline of Bible intake. Personally, privately, read the Bible, study the Bible, 
memorize the Bible, meditate on the Bible, take in the scriptures personally, privately. Secondly, pray on your own, in your quiet place. Pray. If the only time you pray is when someone else leads you in prayer, you're missing out on a lot of drawing near to God. Personal, private time in prayer is absolutely important for drawing near to God. Also fast. Take a day off from lunch and draw near to God. And then when your belly starts to growl, you say, what am I doing? Oh, yeah, I'm drawing near to God today because drawing near to him is more important than feeding my belly. That's the whole purpose of fasting is to draw your attention to God and to meet with him. Worship. If the only time you worship the Father is when we get together in this room and the band gets up here and plays their instruments, you're missing out. Draw near to God as an individual believer through personal spiritual disciplines, but also draw near to God through the body life of the church, through the corporate life of the church. So if you want to draw near to God, this is a great place to be. This gathering is a great place to be as we draw near to God together. Because there is something about our affections and there is something about our attention that will be all the more aware and acute when we're gathered together in a group like this. Like we will go to heights that we will not go by ourselves when we're together. We'll talk about this more next week of why we should not neglect assembling together. But it is good for us to corporately worship God, right? Partly because some of y'all can sing and I cannot And I love it when you guys just let it rip in this room because I can and nobody can hear me over you. And it's good, right? So through body life, we get together to worship. We get together for fellowship. It is good just to share our lives. We had, in in my Sunday school class today, two people came in with slings, like arms and slings. And I thought, this is good. This is good that both of these people know they're not the only people on the planet with their arm in a sling today. What are, the, what are the odds of two people in a small group like that being in slings? You're not alone in this life, and you won't see that unless you get together with some people because Satan will convince you when you're isolated from people that you are all alone. And he's right. You are all alone if you are completely isolated from other believers. But get together for fellowship. Get together for accountability. I heard Jason Brannock the other day talk about how how many years he'd been following Jesus but never reading God's word. How many years he had trusted in Jesus for his salvation but had never been regularly with discipline reading God's word. And now he has developed that discipline and he's talking about why did I why did I waste so many years? Why did I why did I forsake that for so long? Why did I miss out on such and you know what it took to get him there? A little bit of accountability. A little bit of some other guys saying, "Read today." Did you read today? A little bit of, just the tiniest bit of accountability to somebody else went a long way. I hope I'm not speaking out of turn for him. I think he would say the same thing to you. A little bit of accountability is a good thing in our lives. And also service. The body of Christ provides opportunities for service that you won't find in isolation. We had, a, we had a group gone to Arizona this last week. We had a group that went to Memphis. We've got opportunities to serve all over the place weekly, monthly, quarterly. There's no shortage of opportunities to get involved in serving other people, and that's one of the benefits of body life. So draw near to God through personal spiritual discipline and through the body life of the, of the church. Draw near to God on your own and draw near to God together. And then finally, the last application is hold fast. 
don't turn away from Christ to anything else, even when life gets difficult. And life will get difficult. And you'll be tempted to turn away from Christ. And it will happen slowly and suddenly, subtly. You won't wake up one morning and say, I forsake Christ. I renounce him. You will take tiny little steps further and further and further away from him towards something else. And what I want to say is hold fast to Jesus every day, continually. Remember, it's a present tense verb. Hold fast. Keep on holding fast to Jesus. Don't let go of him, even in a world that is trying to convince you something else will be better. In a world that's trying to convince you that Jesus doesn't really help, hold fast to Jesus. He's the only hope you've got. Let's stand together and pray. God, we want to be balanced in our approach to this obedience. We want to be solid in our doctrine and in our action. So we pray that as we pursue obedience, that you will keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, that we will keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, and that we will draw near to you through personal discipline, through body life, here at church, with the family, that we'll draw near to you, worship you, see you, have encounters with you that change us forever. And God, we pray that you help us to hold fast, that we will resolve to hold unswervingly to Christ in the midst of a world of chaos and pain that we will hold to Jesus because he's holding to us. God, I pray these things for your people and recognize that there are some in this room who don't belong to you. They're outsiders. They're dead in their trespasses and sins, hopeless apart from Christ. So my prayer for them today is that you will show them that through the death and resurrection of Christ, the door has been opened into your presence and the invitation has been offered. Access has been granted. And so I pray that men and women and boys and girls will respond to that access by repenting of their sins and trusting in Jesus Christ, that they will come into your presence by your grace through faith in Christ alone and that you'll receive honor and glory for the new life that they receive. God, I pray that you have your way in our hearts and that even as we sing this song, that we'll be drawing near to you, holding fast to Christ, all for your glory. In Christ's name we pray.